Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Have you ever used equipment primarily from one supplier and then decided down the road to switch your shop to a totally new supplier? Essentially ripped out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of equipment and spent the same amount or more buying new equipment? Our guest today, Zach Fennell of Ameritex in Conroe, Texas, which is outside of Houston, led the charge to do exactly that. He gets into why they made the decision to do so, how they did it, how they financed it, and if he had to do it all over again, what they would do differently. In addition, we talk about really big parts, tube cutting and roll forming, and file management as a few other areas that technology has made an impact in their business. Buckle your seatbelt and let the ride begin. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Zach. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's like to see you and really appreciate you being on. I think the way I'd like to start with you today is maybe a basic question. What gets you out of bed every morning excited for the day at Ameritex? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think that what gets me out of bed personally, that we have a, a solid team that I'm sure everybody has their own reasons for going in every day. But me personally, I'm striving to create something that stands out. I want a business that makes it easy to buy metal parts. That, that's, my, that's my goal is to make it as easy as possible for people to buy metal parts. And most of that is driven by technology implementations. So, you know, What's that next best thing that can help us do our jobs easier, faster, 
and turn parts around quicker in the end. I would say that that's my main focus is the technology side and making those things work. And it's it's a daily daily struggle. There's bugs you're working out every single day. There's people doing workarounds you didn't know were doing workarounds. So you're trying to find a fix for their workarounds. That's really, it seems to be my focus. I wasn't planning on going down this path, but I loved your answer and I want to explore it a little bit. Have you ever heard the commencement address that David Foster Wallace? I don't believe so. So he talked about in the beginning, there's two fish, young fish swimming in the ocean and they swim by an older fish and the older fish says to him, how's the water? And they look at each other, the two younger fish, and they say, what's water? And where I'm going with that is in our daily struggle to get parts out, to make it happen in our businesses, we sometimes don't lift up our heads. And I'll say from the customer's perspective, feel what they're feeling. And when you said make it easy to buy metal parts, my immediate thought was what is hard? What do you think is hard right now for customers to buy metal parts? Why is it not easy? I think that most businesses are kind of the old school mentality of send us your drawings. We'll put your quote together if we're familiar with what you want. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if all the stars align and that part is a fit for our shop, we'll quote it for you, right? And that mm-hmm. process can be drag out. You could get no quotes, no response, no feedbacks. Things like that is really what I want to build a team that addresses that full circle there on the front end. And then after that, I guess not to get off the quoting side of things, if I have a team that can provide feedback even to the things that we don't want to do, right? Or the things that we would normally no mm-hmm. quote just have that impact or that service with the customer to say, you know, hey, we can't do this, but if it was drawn like this, we could do it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Provide that feedback loop for them where they know why and they don't just feel like they're scrambling to find somebody to quote their work. And then the technology in the shop, right, is having all the tools to back all that up, right? We do a wide Mm -hmm. array of work. So having all the tools in place and the technology in place to be able to You know, if I sell something that we've never done before, I got to have the tools to back me up. And that's really what I mean by that. The technology in the shop, it is for the customer, right? We have to push those machines to the limits so that we can do those things that, you know, whatever new machine you get, there's always going to be a customer that tests the limits of that machine, (laughs) right? For sure. You have to be on your game. The interactions with the customer mostly happen within that quoting process, a little bit perhaps when there's parts making, if there's questions, but you probably nailed a lot of that down when you are providing them with the pricing and lead time. You touched on some areas, how a traditional shop works. What do you think a customer wants? I think that a customer wants a easy transaction. That's just the simplest terms. I think that if they get too many questions up front and they feel like they presented you the information, it frustrates some customers. If they don't get enough questions up front and you blindside them with a change order because those questions weren't asked, they get frustrated. So I think it's somewhere in between, like not you know using the information they give you to make sure that you're grasping all the things that they're already providing and then asking the right questions after the fact, right? 
Only mm-hmm. ask what you need to ask. Don't overcomplicate things. I think what even frustrating for us and when we use a lot of outside services for we do comp, you know, the, mm-hmm. everything under the moon, right? So if we have a relationship with a vendor who's just kind of nitpicky with questions and just makes it hard just to do the job, right? There's a fine line there where asking enough questions versus beating up the job too much where you don't want to do it anymore. You're like, yeah, you're kind of asking too many questions. What's going on? You not know what you're doing, you know? That's, I think that they want that perfect mix of asking the right questions and making things flow. They don't want to have to talk to you for 20 hours to get the job done, right? I describe that as wanting to create a frictionless business environment for your customers. Yeah. And I look at it as if you are frictionless, they probably have a lot of friction with other suppliers, with other things that they have to do in their life. So that if you make it frictionless, they will forgive you being slightly higher in price. They'll forgive some other things because you just make it so easy that they know they're going to have friction in other areas and they can give you an order, let you run with it, and then they can go worry about the stuff that is causing strife in their life. I think I'm going to instill that from you. And I I completely agree. Frictionless is the perfect uh, way to describe that. I love it. So you touched upon a lot of technology implementation. What is your role at Ameritex? My title's uh, COO. I deal with a lot of day-to-day struggles, a lot of firefighting. And then, of course, like I said, looking into technology and how we're using it in the shop and new tools that we can use to to do our job better. I do more firefighting than I want, <laughs> honestly. So that can consume, you know, a day might go by where you're like, man, I didn't do anything I wanted to do today. I've been putting out fires all day. Hmm. But overall, kind of monitoring our financial success and technology kind of encompasses my role. As COO, do you have a lot of direct reports? Not too many. We have a general manager in place that, that we've kind of put as the middleman and, and he's, he fills all the, the nitty gritty stuff, right? Or the most important sure. stuff comes up to us. Jeff Kerbo is one of my partners. He's the president. You know, our roles kind of cross and we wear each other's hats and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, s- small business life, but he, he's in the same boat as me, right? So we're, we're kind of taking those things that can't be weeded out by the rest of the employees. So once the problems kind of weed it, work their way up to us, then we get together and squash them. <laughs> exactly. Buck stops here. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. got to make that call, right? If we're at a barbecue on a Saturday having a beer and I asked you, you know, what do you do? What, and you say, I COO at Ameritex. How would you describe Ameritex to someone? I literally tell people we make anything out of metal. <laughs> anything <laughs> out of metal. That, that is, uh, that's my go-to line. It's hard for people to grasp, really. They're like, oh, you do, you make oil and gas stuff. Do you do this? Do you do that? Do you do windows? I'm like, yeah, we built all of that stuff. And they're like, oh, okay. What all do you build? Literally whatever the customer asks of us. So we probably should say no more than what, we what we do but when times get tough having that ability to roll with the punches and take any job that people throw at you is is very useful i'm sure there's no rough patches in the oil business and it's always smooth sailing right <laughs> yeah it's perfect absolutely <laughs> perfect 
we've been doing great lately the past couple of years we've been diversifying a lot and but but yeah yeah well if you get those orders you do them as fast as you can because you don't know if they're going to stick around right yeah <laughs> exactly well maybe you could flesh out ameritex a little more and tell us how many folks how many square feet types of equipment shifts lot sizes you know yeah. so we understand the perspective that you're coming from yeah i'd have to check our current census but we've been around 130 employees for a while now we're trying to staff up more than that hiring has been tough lately um but, but yeah around 130 employees we recently consolidated two facilities to a just under 100,000 square foot facility in conroe texas i've kind of poured my heart and soul into refurbing and remodeling an old building and not super old building, but 2006, I believe. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it was an old NOV building, but uh, it was kind of had the footprint that we wanted, but not in the best of shape. So we cleaned it out, kind of made it our showroom that we've been wanting for a while that we haven't been able to do. Because when you're trying to redo your layout and you have all this old equipment in the way, you don't want to Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. There's always something in the way where you want to put something. So, so we, we went about renovating this building and laid it out how we want things. And it's nice. So anyways, around 130 employees, hundred thousand square feet. And we're, we're a job shop. We do everything from small brackets to interlocking wall panel or crimp wall, drag skids, big buildings that are 70 foot long. So we have a mm-hmm. very wide array of capabilities. So you are more of a sheet metal and shop and fabricator than a machine shop, but you have some machining capabilities? Yes. Yeah. So we do have a couple mills and a couple lathes that we use. We have some machine only customers, but a lot of the work that we do on those machines is, you know, complements our structural fabrication or our welded assemblies. They'll have a few machine parts that go into an assembly that we make in-house instead of subbing out. So it is a service we provide as machining only as well. It's just primarily used for things that we have other, you know, downstream processes on. So on the fabrication side, you have, I would assume, lasers, punch, forming equipment. Yes. Um, yeah. Welding, yeah, so, you mentioned all that. Yeah. Any, so we, anything else in particular that's perhaps maybe a little different than most shops? Yeah. Yeah. We recently installed a 20 K fiber laser. So high power 20 K. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the first in the U S for LVD. We, we have a LVD, all LVD equipment now besides the two blazers Our two blazers are BLM, but we have two, two, two blazers, automated tool changing press brakes, the LVD tool cells, and then two sheet lasers with automation. One of them is a 20 K fiber. One of them is a 10 K fiber. And then a LVD PX punch. So Trump Mm -hmm. style tools, which it was actually installed a few months ago. So relatively new. How thick can a 20 K laser cut in say cold roll steel? Uh, We can, we can cut, they advertise inch and a half. We haven't personally cut it yet. It's takes the perfect material. So you can cut inch and a half if you have Mm. plate but we inch and a quarter is fine one inch is usually our limit and then inch and a half and inch stainless steel and aluminum is an option too which those are the quality of the plate is usually good so you can cut that wow. that's amazing that's amazing yeah it's pretty and incredible how, did you used to do that with plasma or how would you cut before you had that laser if we had which we could cut up to one inch on our 10k uh mm-hmm. 
but we would sub out to the flame cutters or plasma flame cutters. that gotcha. would, it would get us the plates and we wouldn't be drilling holes or, you know, whatever we needed to do to make it within tolerance. Mm-hmm. How about shifts? Are you running more than one shift? Yeah, we're running two shifts again, trying to staff up for a third, but currently running two. And how about lot sizes are you make quantity one? Do you do a thousand pieces? What's your sweet spot? Our sweet spot is in the dozens of parts. We do parts up to multiple thousands, but they're few and far between. And we also do prototyping, but I would say we're just more low volume. You know, there's prototyping, low volume and production. Mm -hmm. We're probably in that low volume. If you would try to classify us as something. Gotcha. You said you don't say no often enough. What do you say no to? Why would you no quote something? We usually, if we can't talk people down on tolerances, that's usually our main motivator for a no quote. And usually it's with the reason we're like, hey, if you could do, you know, if they have this welded assembly and there's, you know, it's a 30 second tolerance across 20 feet, we can't touch it. <laughs> and, and they do that, right? They ask, right, that. right. Uh, that's not something I'm making up, uh, but that is, we, you know, we'll tell them, hey, we can hold eighth inch over that distance. And that's what we're quoting. Usually try to so wait, 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 you can hold an eighth inch tolerance over 20 feet. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on what that tolerance is for, you know, squareness, <laughs> the eighth inch to a quarter inch over, yeah. over, over 20 foot to square a skid or something like that is not uncommon, but yeah, yeah, it's not too difficult. My world is so much smaller in part size. So hearing things like that amaze me. And there's definitely a, a skill set that there's a lot of art there as well as technology for sure. Yeah. A, a, a lot of those things are structural assemblies that we're having to build that size. And the two blazers have really helped us you know, address a lot of those issues. Having nice parts, having perfect parts to start mm. your assembly with, it makes a welder job 10 times easier. Obviously they can throw something out of square, you know, sling it together and not focus on square and still mess up, but having perfect parts going in and not, you know, saw cut eighth inch off or crooked or torch cut by hand, you know, all the other, you know, what most people do with structural, we do with a a two blazer. So everything's accurate and it's just like a part off your sheet laser. It's, it's perfect. So I'm going to definitely ask you later in the podcast about the two blazer, but I want to continue on. Ameritex and how did the shop get started? It was started by my grandfather. He started a business called Cleveland Manufacturing in the 70s and did sheet metal work and also got into electrical integration. So, you know, enclosures and things that house electrical components. He would build the enclosure and then have the do the electrical integration mm-hmm. as well. Electrical side of it, once they really got into that, it, it slowed things down a bit. My uncles were involved in the business too. They grew, kind of grew up in it. So they got a taste of the, you know, both the electrical side and the metal side as well. And anyways, after a while, they got a, a buyout offer. And and once that deal was done, my grandpa, he started a, or he came up, you know, we're in this area where the business is and he wanted to start something just doing the metal side again, right? Not, not competing with the electrical stuff, just making metal parts like they did in the beginning. And anyways, he kicked that off with a buddy. And then my dad and my uncle came on board in 2000, 
05, I believe. Jeff Kerbo, the current president, came on board 2006. I was working in high school there and kind of just went from there. It was in a much different state, but my my dad, whenever he was working with, for a limited time, working with the company that bought out Cleveland, the, the previous business, he came over after a short stint with them, came over to Ameritex and kind of gave it the kick in the butt it needed. He was the aggressive, we'll do anything to get you your parts. Gotcha. Uh, mentality that really kicked it into high gear and it flew from there. And when did you first start working in the business? I assume since it's a family business, they probably grabbed you as soon as possible. Probably not supposed to to say it, but uh, I think the statue of limitations is over. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) I believe I was 13 sweeping the floors and spot welding parts. And then in high school, 2006, I started working every, you know, I got off of school at two 30 and I worked till my curfew was 11, I think. So I worked till 10 30 and worked a full-time job after, (laughs) after school, but I did welding and uh, I worked on the press break you know, loaded, unloaded the laser, things like that at, at nights and days as well. We we didn't really have a weekend shift, but they worked pretty much every Saturday at that point. So I, I worked late with the guys and then worked on Saturday most of the time. Manufacturing's equivalent of the farm. Yeah, exactly. It, it was good. It was a great learning experience and everybody was really helpful. I think them seeing me work in it. And there's still some people there to this day that I work beside that I think it, it went a long way. So more mm-hmm. than just me learning things, it was, it was good to say, no, I, I know what you're going through, right? Like, I, yeah, I, you did it. You yeah, made been, parts. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the most fascinating areas that I want to get into that I'm blown away with what you did in terms of taking a lot of invested money and equipment and saying this isn't serving our needs and what got us here isn't going to get us there so i want to spend a fair chunk of time here talking about your whole process of saying we are going to swap out the equipment from one supplier and replace it with equipment from another supplier because that was pretty ballsy move yeah yeah that was that I took a, I wouldn't say, eventually we had to just say, we're going to do this and move forward, but I'll kind of walk you through that, that process. So, yeah. So let, let's start with the shops running. You're obviously making parts and what was the catalyst where you said, you know what, we need to look at another equipment supplier or suppliers because what we're doing, I, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but looking ahead at the future, we're not going to be able to do with what we have. So yeah. is that a good starting point? Yeah. Yeah. It was more that it was going to be more difficult to do with what we have. We could do it and we were doing it, but it was really, really what initiated things where we, we were with Amata, we were red and black shop, literally our, 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 you know, Signs were red and black. Our kiosks that we put in the shop were red and black. The welding yeah. curtains were red and black, right? Yeah. So we were completely Amada, and we got into their ATCs, their tool-changing press breaks, and they were great. We were doing 100, I think we recorded 117 tool changes on one press break in one shift. Wow. Uh, we were just doing onesie-twosie parts all day long. So super mm-hmm. quick. It was great, but we had a problem once we got we got all into invested in the tool changers and we wanted to get rid of the manual standalone machines. Well, the tool changing press brakes at the time, I don't know if I'm modified them now, 
but manual loading tools was not ideal, very difficult and very slow. So we started looking around, you know, at Fabtech and, and looking for a tool changing brake that could handle, uh, let me pause for a second. The, the reason we really needed the manual tools was because we used some larger dies for plate bending, right? We weren't all mm. sheet metal. Right, right. These were really, really great on sheet metal. But when we got into plate, quarter inch and thicker, it was, we had to use our manual tools and adapters and things to try to get them into the ATCs. And we were worried about one, breaking the machines and two, the load time to, to make that happen. They weren't really ideal for that. Anyway, so at Fabtech and we started looking and we saw LVD and we, was, we asked them, you know, Hey, what's your, you know, what's your tool holder? And they're like, it's, it's a standard wheel punch and die rail. So we were like, we can put any tools in there. Like, yeah. And we're like, can you automatically load a punch and manually put a die in the bottom? We're like, yeah. We're like, show us that. And they did it. Mm. And we're like, Hmm, that's very useful. Right. So, so it was kind of eye opener that, that somebody out there solved the problem that we were having. After we saw that, it probably took a year or so for us to actually buy our first LBD press brake. And what we did, we had started a second facility in Conroe. We had one in Willis and one in Conroe. We got this second facility just to increase floor space. We're like, what would it hurt to just have that press brake over here, right? We're not trying to, you know, use right. two softwares in the Willis facility. And like, Let's just try it. And we got the press brake in and it was, it was a little cumbersome with the programmers. Like, hey, we need a program for the, for the LVD. You got to program in their software and all that stuff. But once we got doing it, we noticed how, you know, they're, they're kind of slow and steady, right? They're the tortoise and Amada's the hare, right? They, okay. They, Mata loads really, really fast, kind of lighter duty. And the LVD was a slower loading machine, but really reliable and, and steady. And we could manually load tools in it. So it convinced us to pursue that further. And I think in that Conroe facility, we added another, another press brake in one of their lasers. So we had a 10 kilowatt fiber in two of their press brakes in that shop. And we sold the Amada laser that was in that shop and replaced it with that, with the LVD. So we kind of had an LVD shop running at our second facility. Well, let me ahead. ask, yeah, if I can pause you for a moment. What sort of dollars are you talking about when you're talking an Amato and an LBD ATC or automatic tool changing press brake, and then the swapping out the lasers? What sort of dollars <laughs> and how did you sell your existing laser? I mean, these are questions that if I'm a shop owner listening, it's like, okay, how does this all this work? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we can definitely talk about that. The the laser is one thing going for us is all of our equipment is new. We've kind of always traded in equipment when we buy the next best thing, and that's that really helps us with the resale value. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the you know a ten kilowatt fiber with the tower is a, a million plus investment, and the tool changing press brake with tools are you know your roughly half a million investment mm-hmm. each. So they're not cheap. It's not the easiest decision in the world by any means, but they pay for themselves. They definitely pay for themselves. When we went with the 10 kilowatt fiber, we gained the extra speed on a nitrogen cutting quarter inch plate and three eighths plate, which were just like our bread and butter. We really did a lot mm-hmm. of quarter inch and three eighths. So it was just a no brainer. We cut it twice as fast. Gotcha. So that's really what justified the decision. The price, obviously, it's not using tax incentives as well. Your section 179 is you know, advanced depreciating your equipment. It definitely helps uh, mm-hmm. helps you make that decision. 
But, sure. but outside of that, it was purely, this is what we want to do, right? We want to try this. So we had the second facility in Conroe that was kind of our LVD shop. Let me ask some nitty gritty questions before we go on though, in terms of the financing. So did LVD offer financing? Did you have a relationship with your bank? So they were comfortable. How did yeah. you, so how did you know you could pay? Obviously they were going to pay for themselves, but how did you get the monies to buy them? Yeah, so we have established equipment lines of credit with our local banks. So the funds are kind of waiting on us to spend. And that's purely set up because we buy equipment all the time uh, mm-hmm. before before having those equipment lines set up with Amada. Amada is, you know, they're their own bank. <laughs> right. So Amada makes it super easy, right? So when we started getting into these other pieces of equipment, with the two blazers and LVD, and other things, we had to have other means of financing. That was another bright side to Amada, right? That was another reason it was hard to leave. Uh, you know, we, you can, <laughs> the financing is negotiable, right? It's like you work right. a deal on a machine and, and work your financing into that deal. Yeah. Uh, so they do, they do make it easy. They make it super easy. They really do make it hard for other people to compete with their financing and everything else. Machine availability is usually better and all that stuff. So did you... So you decided to buy the 10K laser. Did you pre-sell your, it was an Amada laser that you had? No, that we actually, you know, did the deal for the Amada laser and put the Amada, or did the deal for the Electra and Electra is the LVD machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then put the Amada up for sale at the same time and kind of hoped it would sell as the other one was coming in. (laughs) And as a percentage of, the initial cost, what did you recoup for your model laser and how old was it? It probably sold for 80%, something like that. And it mm. was two years old, something right around there. Don't hold me to something right yeah. around there. And also, I guess we'll get into further down the road, but throughout the pandemic time, the used machines values just skyrocketed. They were, it was hard to get machines so you could sell used machines. As long as you were willing to get rid of them quick, people would pay fairly high dollar to get your machine quick. Sure. So you have a new facility in Conroe, you're switching over to LVT, then what? You're uh, switching, yeah. sorry, you're switching over to LVD and then what happened? We ran the LVD equipment and we realized that, you know, the, the lasers, the laser's awesome. The, the laser was linear driven as opposed to all of Amada's machines were going to any of their higher powered machines. Their Insys line was all rack and pinion. So it was very, their speed difference was very, very noticeable. Uh, So the laser was a plus. The press brakes allowed us to manually load tools easily like we wanted to. They were slower loading, a little slower bending, but we decided that it was a good decision. So we ran that shop for a bit and we started making plans to consolidate the two facilities into one. Who within your company besides yourself had to buy into the decision? How did that decision making process work? They're pretty easy sales, but my partner, Jeff Kerbo, the president, and my dad's the CEO, um, mm-hmm. Kenny Pinnell. Both of them, they like the the new toys just as much as I do. So it's it's not too hard of a sell, but it's all three of us are usually on board before we make a move. So the three of you are on board. You're saying, look at Conroe, we are crushing it. Then what did it mean to go to the next step. So it kind of played out where we, things were slow because of COVID. 
we started consolidating people, right? People started consolidating first. Just we didn't want people spread thin. So we were like running specific jobs in our Conroe shop just to that had low personnel requirements and sending the extra people to our Willis facility. And then we started discussing plans to consolidate, get everybody back into one building because the logistics was very difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. That's something that we didn't quite figure out while we had two facilities. And it's something that if we ever have two facilities again, we definitely need to plan for. But we found this this building for sale that that kind of seemed like a good fit. So we started making plans of how we're going to get everything to this building. And in those plans, you obviously, the first thing you think about, because it's a huge expense, is moving equipment, right? So right. we started looking at the equipment we had, you know, getting quotes on what it would cost to move things. And then it was, you know, machines were hard to get at the time. So we started looking at what would someone pay us for this machine? And if we looked at all the moving costs that we would have had to pay out were quite a turnoff where when you buy a new machine and installations included in your price, right? So it's, yeah. the cost is all there, right? Like it's all there. It was more an opinion of where the money was going than it was the actual cost. But looking at the cost to move a laser with a tower, right? So if you have a, a automated laser that it's, it's very expensive to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they take a while to... Yeah, four weeks. Well, four weeks, but okay, yes. So you're down a laser four weeks, but also my experience has been it takes a while to get them tuned in again. They don't work exactly right as soon as you get them up and running. There's yeah, yeah, and if something breaks during the move, or you know, if there, there's always things that can occur. Our biggest motivator was the moving cost and the the fact that the machines at the time were selling for a premium for a used machine uh, mm-hmm. it just made sense to us if we've been trying to figure out how to migrate all to lvd or any new machine vendor that now was the time right we could sell these machines at a premium avoid the moving costs and then set up the new facility exactly how we want it so that you know just those those concepts in general just motivated everything we started working with lvd to quote out what else we needed this 20k we needed to replace our punch press we had an amada punch so we needed to replace it with lvd punch Mm -hmm. and we worked all these deals and had those machines in our order for those machines and looking at those arrival dates of those machines we put our other machines up our amada machines up for sale kind of some had contingencies on them where we needed to wait, wait for the the lvd replacement to be in but Mm -hmm. the rest we you know if we needed to let it go to make a deal go through we let it go and we figured out a way to to do without it okay Uh, and that's how that's how it happened what i'm hearing is there's a couple key considerations if you are thinking about doing this and one is that a move is a great time a new facility is a great time to make some big changes and yes. the fact that you can if you are have the buyers of equipment lined up in those contingency in terms of the dates there's some flexibility make sure you're up and running in your new facility so you really don't have any downtime in parts making but you're still able to recoup the money that you put into your used equipment and you're saving on you're not having to move at all so a lot of pluses to the coordination of time. 
The other is you you mentioned Jeff and your father, and it sounds like you guys work together really well as a team. If you are a sole owner and you perhaps don't have a strong team behind you or they're really focused on making parts there's probably a lot of things you you had to get a new facility ready you're making all these buying decisions you got to run the business on a day-to-day maybe you could comment on that and how the team worked and how you shuffled responsibilities while all this was happening yeah yeah the team it would have been really hard to do by myself and I by no means did everything or most of everything at all. During this transition, I focused on the new building. So as far as the the renovations and shop layout and what equipment we needed where and all, you know, all those concepts, which took a ton of time and a lot of effort to, to make things go, right? Mm-hmm. And Jeff was primarily focused on production. So he stayed in Willis and and kept making parts, right? So we had someone keep making parts and and Kenny was still able to, you know, monitor the business and be that higher up looking down to see what we're not seeing, right? Mm-hmm. That extra set of eyes. So we had me or Jeff c- continue with production. I worked on implementing this or getting this new facility going. And then Kenny was watching us and saying, hey, don't forget about this. What are we going to do about that? You know, just, just that extra set of, of supervision that if you're in the weeds, you, you miss stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely, I think a, a three person team is, is pretty ideal. Less, I would say two would be difficult and one would be very, very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a fantastic, I'll call him facilities manager. He ran our IT and he handled all our moves and we, we moved stuff over the course of the 17 years we were in business, even within the facilities, moving things around, having somebody who who owns all that so you can still have someone else focus on running the business is so important. Yeah. Yeah. We put a lot of resources into the new facility and it was hard at times, but you can really say we didn't miss a beat as far as production goes. We were blowing and going the whole time, right? Yeah. Let me, let me ask some sort of rapid fire questions on this. You talked about, you had an equipment line of credit with your bank. Had you been working with your bank? for a long time had they been your bank are they a national bank are they more regional or local bank regional bank or local bank i guess but yeah yeah we had a long banking relationship i wouldn't say long the equipment line line of credit was something we brought up after deciding we're you know switching from amada and not going to have their credit access to their financing anymore it's just something we brought up and it was an easy conversation we've, we've been a great customer with our bank so it's it wasn't um nothing special about the conversation other than, Hey, we need a solution for this. And I'm like, oh, we can do an equipment line of credit. <laughs> okay. and, and so great. for someone who do you have a traditional line of credit as well? Yeah. Okay. So for someone who is not familiar with what an equipment line of credit is, how does that work and how is it different than your traditional line of credit? Yeah. So the equipment line of credit will is basically this pool of funds, whatever your agreed upon amount is, an approved amount with your bank. They let you purchase equipment and the money's there. You don't have to say, hey, bank, here's the equipment I need to buy. You're pre-approved for that equipment, whatever, as long as it's under that amount. And they'll wire the funds to the machine manufacturer, whoever you buy from or 
even mm-hmm. used equipment. And that amount of the equipment line rolls over into a conventional loan, equipment loan right after you use the amount. So our, you know, if we spent $500,000 on a piece of equipment out of our, you know, whatever the line of credit is, that $500,000 would roll over into a three or five year loan at the agreed upon rate when we establish the line of credit. So that's the, it's where your normal line of credit, you pull and pay back and pull and pay back. It doesn't, everything you pull doesn't roll over into another loan. We had equipment lines of credit. And to add to that, first of all, the banks love them because they want you to use the money. That's how they make money is lending money. So for them to establish up front and have you easily draw upon that it makes sense for them and they are definitely eager as long as you pay your bills and as long as as the ratios work and all that the other thing i'll add is there's a lot of negotiables in an equipment line of credit and Mm -hmm. don't take whatever your bank offers you if you don't like it so you mentioned three or five year term that it rolls over to well they may come back and tell you it's a three-year term and you tell them well i want it to be a five-year term and they may hem and haw but they they probably give it to you the other is particularly in today's environment you don't want they may say we'll we'll do it at a interest rate of prime plus plus half half or whatever and you say well yeah, but I need some stability. Let's fix it at, it can't go over this. So everything is negotiable with the bank. And I want to make that point. Don't put them on a pedestal. If you don't like it, tell them, tell them. And if you're not comfortable, see if you can find someone who will help you speak their language. That is really helpful. But bottom line is, when you want to move, if you've got a good opportunity, whatever the reason is, to have an equipment line of credit, it doesn't cost you anything to have it, but it's there. And, yeah. Exactly. Now, now you're you're rocking and rolling, and it's the end of the year, and you you made a lot of money, and you want to use that section 179, and yeah. now's the time to buy, and but you don't have time to go out and get a loan, or you're, you're busy making parts, you don't want to spend the time doing that. Yeah, yeah I think that's, the, that's the biggest part of it is the the quick access and being able to just make a quick decision and not have to slow everything down with all your loan documents that you would normally have to go through if you didn't have that equipment. Yeah. You saw LVD at Fabtech. Did you really look at any other suppliers or once you saw them, you said, this works? I want to understand did you do more of a survey the whole market or it they came along and this these are the guys yeah we looked around quite a bit everybody was kind of in development stage of their atcs you know amata beat everybody to it and mm-hmm. lvd was real close right there with them i think bystronic at the time was exploring a robot arm that was integrated with their press brake to load we weren't really interested in having a separate robot that loaded the tools. Mitsubishi was still developing theirs. I think Salvanini had a tool, something like a tool adjuster or something like that. It, it, it moved the tools around on the bed, but didn't load new tools. So we were kind of in a, in a weird spot at the beginning, at the early stages of it, where 
not everybody was there yet. And LVD was the closest competitor to Amada. And, mm-hmm. and that one selling point that really got us interested was that, you know, put a die in there and then man- automatically load the punch, you know, manually let me put a die in there and, yeah, sure. punch. and they did that. And it was just like, okay, that's what we needed to see. So yeah, that's about how it went. We did market research, looked at everybody out there and it just nobody solved our problem except LVD at the time. I want to give a plug for actually going to shows because IMTS was held recently. You said you went to Fabtech and saw this. It would have been really hard to make a decision without seeing these things in action, right? Yeah, because if you look online at a machine, you know, the question we asked or told them, hey, load manually load your die and automatically load the punch. They wouldn't have been able to do that. You don't see that online. It's not something that there's like a QA and a that that you see. You just... You know, you look at it and you're like, oh, cool. And you move on. But being in person and seeing it and asking the operator questions is very critical. Do you go to Fabtech every time it's held or do you go to IMTS? I don't really go to IMTS. Fabtech, I've been a lot. I haven't been since COVID. So this last one, or there's one coming up in November, obviously, but still up in the air on if I'm going to go to that one. But we were taking a group up there. Pre-COVID, we were taking a whole group yearly. It was quite a fun trip, but especially the Las Vegas one. (laughs) <laughs> but, but we need to get back in the groove of things, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Something that's missing right now. Another aspect is that you were many, many years in a Mata shop, and now you had to learn LVD. How was training handled? How did you get your team up to speed so that they were productive with the equipment? Well, it was not the easiest thing in the world, obviously. Not everybody likes change as much as we do. So part of our deal when we made the deal on the LVD equipment was uh, we included training. So mm-hmm. we, to get, the, you know, when the first press break came in, we flew people up to New York to their training center, to their factory in New York to have software training for the press break. And then when we got the laser, they use Landtech as the software behind their laser software. Mm-hmm. built upon Landtech, but they had Landtech trainers come to our shop to train us on the laser side. And of course, the laser training, when they install the machine, you get a week of training with the machine install. So training was force fed to everybody. <laughs> it, <laughs> it wasn't something that we did over a long period of time. It was, hey, this machine is here. Go to New York. Everybody stand the machine for a week and Let's knock it out and learn, learn what we're doing. Uh, there's obviously questions. They, you know, you don't cover everything in training. There's always things that come up that you have to figure out. But, but we, we hit the ground running and we, we figured out how to use them pretty quick. Having been through this and looking back, what would you do differently, if anything, if you had to do it over again? That's a good question. I think with press breaks, I... I would have more thoroughly thought out my tooling packages, honestly. It seems like a lower level thing, but turns out when you switch press brakes and they have two different die and punch rails, all the tools that you used <laughs> for mm-hmm. particular parts get difficult real quick when you don't have the tool that you used to use. So we went through a, a bit of a learning curve, figuring out what tools we need. And to this day, we still find tools that we need. But being mm-hmm. in a modded shop for so long, we had a just a plethora of tools laying around that we used for you know any weird job that came up. And when we switched, we 
lost all that. Right. So mm-hmm. more thoroughly planning that out would definitely be one of my top focuses if I were to do it again. This was fantastic in terms of this process of moving your shop from one equipment supplier to another. Maybe we can dive into a smaller piece, but I have not spoken with anyone who had a tube cutting laser and we did not have one at my shop. What was the impetus for that to come into your shop? When did you make that decision? Why? So we'll take you back to the beginning when we started cutting tube. So we actually, with a our Amada with the motto, we purchased two of their FOM2 rotary combo machines. So you mm-hmm. could cut plate and tubing, which was kind of one of those no brainer things again. In, in a few minutes, you could switch. You know, we didn't have enough tube work to support a you know full blown tube laser, but having that ability to switch over and cut allowed us to sell more things and kind of fill out the market without diving into a huge investment in a tube laser. So we ran on two Amata rotaries and we, you know, as we started saying, Hey, we can cut tubing or, Hey, we can cut channel angle, all this, all the different profile shapes. We started exploring that market and saw, you know, there's more efficient machines out there and we aren't switching our tube lasers back to plate very often. Right. So we had these rotaries that are, they're fairly inefficient. You got to open it. There's no, their material handling is a problem with those combo machines. You have to manually load the tube in and you have to manually pull all your parts out as they cut. So as things are cutting, the operator is opening and closing the door. You know, if it's a big part, he has to move it out every time it cuts. Just seeing that we started looking into tube lasers and, and BLM at the time, just they're still, you know, top of the line, but there's a lot more competition now, but I think 2016, I think 20, 2015, we were shopping in 2016, we had our first LM LT8 installed mm-hmm. and going and seeing that machine. We went to see it cut. We sent them sample parts of these. Uh, it was actually a, a lot of eight inch channel. So fairly heavy, heavy material that we were cutting on our rotaries. And we wanted to see this machine handle it without all the back breaking work that we've been having to do. And we flew up to I think Wixom, Michigan, I believe is where they're at and or no buy anyways they they ran our channels on there and we saw them load up loaded on a conveyor and it fed into the machine and it came out on a conveyor and we we're just <laughs> wow <laughs> it was a very exciting moment because it was it was a chore it was a chore how we were doing it and this machine just was the solution so we what do two cutting lasers cost that lta you're looking in the you know 1.5 plus 1.5 million yeah yeah it's, wow. they're, they're very expensive and that would be like the basic machine and then everything's up from there <laughs> all your adders all your technology you know if you want to load on the front and the back or have mm-hmm. weld seam detection or centering you know all these different options that you can throw on them that just add money to it yeah it sounds like though it wouldn't have been profitable for you to jump right into a tube cutting laser you had that capability and that's what grew the business for that service and justified then later on the ability to do that yeah yeah we kind of use those rotaries to check the temperature of <laughs> use the amount of rotaries just to see what's out there and and we noticed that 
hey, we can sell for these. I like that. Check the temperature. I think there's always a lot of profit in niche services. And if there's not a lot of people who are offering whatever it is, if you're one of the few in the area, I know you also have power rollers and you'd mentioned offline that you do a lot of rolling for other shops because that's not a common service out there. Yeah. 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 It's definitely, there's a ton of other, with two blazers specifically, there's a ton of other fabricators that we just make parts for, right? They don't want to have to saw cut and drill all that structural. So they send it to us, we cut a kit for them and send it back to them to weld together. So, so you're doing that on, on the two blazers as well. Yeah. 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 It's definitely something obviously to with, you know, a multi-million dollar investment, not everybody's <laughs> going to have the work to support that machine. So it's, it's easy to find people that need that service that just simply don't have the volume to support it on their own. Did you have a hunch that that would happen when you got into it or was that unexpected? I th- we've, we've kind of always been in that position to help other fabricators out. So we, we had a hunch. It, it's been something that my dad probably started just, you know, knowing mm-hmm. everybody in the industries. Hey, if you need anything, let me know. And, and mm-hmm. it created some relationships where we help each other out. Right. So we're there. If they, if they need things cut or, you know, even sheet metal parts kits, we have customers that, that don't have a sheet laser. They shear and, you know, right. shear and bend it and we'll cut their complicated parts for them for, to bend up. So it's kind of throughout our company. It's something we do. Let's look at a little different aspect of technology. I'll I'll use that broad term. You you were using a lot of I'll I'll say more cutting edge tools than other shops. How do you learn, become aware of, investigate, even I'll say test the temperature of the capabilities of other technology and maybe specifically some of the software? tools that are out there? I do a lot of demos. I I really, I think that as far as putting your feelers out for on the software side of things, demos are great and, and making, making demos, even, you know, from the software through the machines, making them use your parts Mm -hmm. is a great way to kind of investigate, put your feelers out, see which one, you know, solve, you know, pull your tricky parts out and say, Hey, I need a solution for these. Can you, can you show me what you can do? And that's, that's a, a huge advantage once you see them you know you can immediately see if they're going to struggle with the same parts you're struggling with or if that's an answer for you and that's that's what i guess that's how i get into different aspects right just trying to solve one problem and you do a demo to see if they can solve that problem yeah i'm also thinking there's probably an advantage if you do lots of demos your bullshit detector's probably gotten pretty good. Oh uh, man. Oh, it's great. It's like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, the demos, if you're doing a demo and you ask a question and they can't give you a direct answer, keep asking that question and get get them to say no, we can't do that, because you're gonna find out that they can't do that at some point. That seems to be very common. And I make sure that when I see something not go the way that I expect it to go, I ask, you know. Just to be clear, mm-hmm. does this work this way or not, right? And they yep. have to say yes or no and show me your solution, right? And that it's definitely, definitely improved over the years because I've been suckered into some software packages and machines that they say they can do stuff and they can't. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. One of the things that you mentioned was 
a data management tool and data management is it's a foundational aspect of a shop but really there's not a lot of attention paid to it what tool do you use when did you bring that in and maybe you could talk a little bit about data management and how you use that as glue throughout the shop yeah yeah we use our document management software is m files the letter m dash files it's pretty powerful. The only thing downside to it is it takes a little learning the structure. It's not a normal Windows folder structure. So it takes a little bit of training for people to figure out how to search for things, you know, do advanced search and things like that. We put it in place in 2012. It was actually another one of my dad's great ideas. He he was kind of looking for a way to get rid of all of our messy folders. I'm sure every shop oh, messy, yeah. uh, messy folder systems or you know, people work on a personal project and you'll have their personal project in a customer's folder or something, you know, all sorts of no good things come out of having an uncontrolled folder structure. So mm. files comes in around 2012 and we set up, you know, it's basically establishes classes of documents, which you can create your classes. So your, your things like your customer files can be a class of document and all your customer's job files you save as a customer file with their PO number and their job number and things like that in the metadata for that item. So later on, you can search if you can make all that metadata required fields as well. So let me pause you for a second. What is metadata? It's basically a text tag on a document so that that field, right? It's a, you're just putting a text field in there but you're, you're, you can make a tag for whatever you want, like on a, on a, I guess to simplify that or restate that, the metadata can be established for any document to be whatever subjects you want to define. So you might, you might have a tag for material, yep. for Customer size. Heat number. Gotcha. Right? right, so I can search if I have a, metadata metadata tag for heat number on a job mm-hmm. and that's a required field that my guys have to enter whenever they process a job right if i ever search that heat number the mtr for that heat number would show up but also that any other job information that has that tag with it right so it's basically a way to just put a little snippet of information on every file you know the critical pieces of information that someone would ever think to search for that document, would it, whatever they would want to use in the future to search for that document, you want that to be in your metadata so that it will come up if they search for it. Anyway, so the whole system's built on that, right? You have different classes of documents, and it just creates this structure based on document classes and types of documents, and which is easy to search for. You have a history for everything, so even models, right? I can take if I have my customer files, their models, I can right click and go to previous revisions of that mm. of history. So all the history is there and you can see every time it's been changed. Very, very powerful stuff. I would I recommend someone looking into that or, or something like it if they're struggling with document management. Let's leave this conversation with, hopefully this is a fun question for you. What does the future look like for Ameritex? Where do you see yourself and the company in, say, five years? Over the next five years, I want to get, personally, I'm working with the teams now to more thoroughly develop training programs for engineering all the way through shop operators and things, just all positions. 
So I want to have an Ameritech school, right? That's mm. something I'm looking to develop over the next year or two to perfect mm. it. But to bring in lower level unskilled people and be able to train them up to be something in our organization. Past that, you know, I need those people in place to be able to go anywhere. But past that, I would, I'm really wanting to get into some more R&D and product development for our business and try to try to make some products that really work for us. So the products that you sell yourself? Yes. Yeah. Huh. yeah that's, that's kind of our, you know, as a group, we've talked about it and just want to have something that we're a product that we all find interesting that we want to build, right? This, mm. this, it's kind of more of a, of a fun thing, right? Yeah. And, and have the team there that can steadily be creative in the background and keep coming up with cool things like that, that we do in market. So, but first things first is training people and implementing, implementing all of our technology to the fullest. That's going to be one to three years, right? There's going to be new stuff coming. So make this perfect team and then hopefully have that creative side come out right after that. Well, Zach, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today and sharing and the insights and your story of how you move from Amada to LVD. And obviously Amada is a great company. You, You have specific needs for the particularly this, I think the size of parts that you have, and you made a tough decision and you went for it and it's integrated now into your new facility. You, you shared a lot of those key decision points and factors that yeah, that can make a difference in success or not. So great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. For having me. You know, the other thing I love is, you know, you being involved in Ameritech, you're obviously a super smart guy and you're a digital native. And I want to get that word out to shop owners and really embed that in the consciousness. And you may not think of yourself as a digital native because you're a native. It's just, it comes to you. But that combination with the experience and skills of the gray hair in your leadership team and yeah. myself, I would put in that category, you know, it's allowed you guys to build a dynamo, a, a company that's positioned so well for the future. Yeah. I, I love what you guys have created and I look forward to seeing over the years, what you, what you do do yeah. in yeah. terms of the growth of the company and the products that you create. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll be sure to share it with you if we hit our goals. <laughs> you might have, not hear from me if we don't. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe you'll have your own booth at IMTS or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Anything that you want to get out there that we didn't cover? No, other than if you're not taking technology seriously, I think it's 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 time to start taking it seriously. The technical aspect and or the technology involved in our business is really really helps make things move. They, everything gets easier whenever you use a little bit of technology. So don't be afraid of it. And there's people out there that can, they, they can help you master it. So <laughs> do lots of demos, do lots of demos, do lots of demos and call them for their BS. <laughs> if someone wants to connect with you, how do they reach you? They can email me at zfinell uh, at ameritexllc.com. And uh, I'm very quick to respond on email. If they have any questions feel free to reach out super well i firmly believe we need more zacks in manufacturing yeah. and 
perhaps you are a shop owner who doesn't have a next generation able to be involved in the business. Is there a trusted someone in your company who is a digital native, who if only you gave them a chance, they could help you implement some of that, and I'm air quoting scary computer stuff. It might be uncomfortable, but as Zach says, technology is essential today to keep the company growing. And if you don't want that responsibility, give yourself the permission to delegate it and let the digital native that you trust try some small experiments. If they work, loosen the reins and see what magic happens. Innovate, automate, or evaporate. It's your choice. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Smile and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.